Hello everyone, welcome to the Anime Limited podcast. It's been a while since the last episode, a lot has happened in the world, but we'll be talking more about that in November when we've got past Comic-Con. But before Comic-Con, there is the annual tradition of the Scotland Loves Anime Film Festival, taking place predictably in Scotland. I am Jeremy Graves, in case you're new to the show and you have no idea what you're in for, and today it's going to be a very different episode to normal, as it's all about the deliberations from the four films that were in competition at the Scotland Loves Anime Film Festival. I am joined, as per usual, by one Mr. Andy Hanley, who's sort of behind the microphone, so hopefully you can hear him, but hi Andy. Yes, hello everyone. Hi, you sound fine, that's great. So, today folks, very different show than normal. We've got some special guests, we've got a returning guest, who I'm sure you're all looking forward to hearing his dulcet tones once again. And with that being said, I will hand you over to him for a moment and introduce Mr. Jonathan Clements. Hello, big up your bad cells. I'm Jonathan Clements. I'm the festival jury chairman yet again. Andrew hasn't fired me yet. Um, and I would like to introduce the jury to you by making them introduce themselves. Off you go, Kim. Um, hi, I'm Kim Morrissey from Anime News Network. I work in Tokyo as the Tokyo correspondent. I actually watched all of these movies beforehand when they were in Japan and wrote reviews on them so you can get yourself spoiled if you'd like <laughs> on my opinions. Um, other than that, I do some translating on the side and, well, I like anime. Well, thank God for that. <laughs> actually, Kim came on our on my radar when she translated Mary Okada's um, bio, uh, memoirs. Oh, uh, the recent book. The, the recent book. Mm. That's that's how I first heard of her. I like anime, but I don't always like anime. So if you hear me being a bit down on these ones, you're going to fit right in here, don't yeah. worry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm Carl May. Um, I'm one of those filthy YouTubers you've heard about. Um, I run a channel called The Canaper Effect. I live in Japan because I want to. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I cover stuff uh, going on in the anime industry. You also work for Anime News Network. I also Network. work for Anime News Network. I do. A minor detail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I do uh, work for Crunchyroll, a site called Otacrest. I, I get around. Uh, I'm Roxy Simons, I'm a journalist uh, and film critic. I focus mainly on Japanese and Korean culture, but I also work for Mail Online, please don't judge me, as a showbiz <laughs> reporter. And uh, yeah, my special interests are always in anime and Japanese films and things like that. So there we go, folks. That is our panel for today. Uh, but before we go any further... Yeah, I just want to point out that the, the jury actually had four members uh, this year, but Almar Hafliderson uh, from Fetch PR... Um, has already got his plane home this morning. So I will be pretending to be him on occasion if anything that he said gets left out. So Andy, first of all, bring everybody up to speed. What were the four films that were in competition at the festival this year? Yes, indeed. So uh, the four films in competition were uh, Calamity of a Zombie Girl, which I think everybody has many wonderful things to say. Um, <laughs> Penguin Highway, Mirai, and the uh, kind of slightly confusingly titled I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. Now, before going any further, need to point out from this point on, there will be spoilers. So if you've not seen these films, which chances are is going to be a lot of you, there will be spoilers. If you don't want anything spoiled in great detail or any detail at all, thank you for listening. We really appreciate you tuning in. See, see you same time next year. Otherwise, from this point on, massive, massive spoiler territory. You've had your giant warning. So, Calamity of a Zombie Girl. Jonathan, where do we start with this? <laughs> uh, um, 
Calamity of a Zombie Girl is uh, uh, came under fire from the jury for not having enough zombies in it. Uh, <laughs> the, the main issue. Um, I, I, I I suppose I should try and summarise what. I, <laughs> it's uh, for me. It came out very much like a very bad episode of Scooby Doo. Uh, people wandering around a school, accidentally waking up a couple of zombies. Was, was it accidental? The zombies themselves, however, turn out to be uh, ridiculously hot girls um, who want to kill everybody. It's the best I can do with, with, with that one. Um, and uh, I, I felt very much from the beginning that this would be what we call our Gusco Badori. Ah. It would be a film that would not make it into the final cut. Did it make it through a taxi ride, though? Um, there was no taxi. Luckily, oh, this, <laughs> this year, for, for various reasons, um, that we were actually just over the road from the, uh, the Edinburgh Filmhouse, so we just had to run over the road, have the meeting in a ridiculously loud pub, um, and then and then I could run back and introduce Cyber City Oedo at the end. So um, there, there was no taxi to throw it out of, but uh, it, it really didn't have much of a much of a, a showing and it didn't do particularly well in the audience award did it Andy? No it finished bottom of the audience award it averaged yeah. 3.03 out of 5. Uh, what, I, what I will say on Almar's behalf since he's not here is that uh, Almar works in PR and he has to sell a lot of horror films and he said what he really liked about this and appreciated about it was just how transgressive and horrible it was um, he said that a lot of the films he has to try and sell now or that are offered to him to sell even though they're horror, they are sanitised and they are politically correct. Um, and he says that, that that really, for him, removes a lot of the appeal of horror. Um, and that the whole point of it is it's supposed to make you, you know, feel icky. Um, so he, he, he said, you know, many props to the Japanese for continuing to have boobs flopping out during stabbings and so on. <laughs> he's, very, he's very pleased about that. Um, uh, and he, he doesn't mean that in a bad... It's a very interesting you know, thing that he's facing, is that you know, we're in an environment that is in, increasingly aware of, um, of various political and gender issues uh, in, in films. Um, I thought maybe some people would be excited about the idea of a zombie film where you practically end up rooting for the zombies, which is something that Calamity of a Zombie Girl is trying to do. But, you know, the panel didn't fall for any of that. <laughs> so, I suppose to sort of set the scene, although you've given a description of what it is, Andy, if you had to give an elevator pitch for what the film is going to be going in, how would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of like a frame of comparison, the thing I've uh, compared it to is the video game Until Dawn, if anybody's played that, because oh. that is a game that kind of sets you up with a, a group of very unlikable characters, and ostensibly you're kind of supposed to save them and stop them being killed horribly, but if they do die horribly, you're probably not going to be too upset about it because they're all <laughs> utterly dislikable. And Clancy of a Zombie God does a very similar thing, as Jonathan just uh, kind of mentioned. All of its main cast of characters are mostly pretty awful people in some shape or form and so kind of watching them get bumped off is kind of supposed to be half the fun um, but yeah it kind of harks back to you know kind of as Almar said really kind of the sort of thing you don't see anymore it is all kind of blood guts and boobs and you know I think there's probably for some old school anime fans who are you know kind of brought up in the Ninja Scroll era it will probably kind of you know be a little bit redolent of, of some of that kind of stuff because yeah it just so you're, you're it, saying it's an old school beer and curry movie really. exactly that's exactly the kind of thing it is and I think you know there is something to be said for that but obviously it didn't uh, mesh with the audience or a jury yeah and, and I will say as well that uh, through no fault of anybody there was uh, a contextual issue with this film as well which certainly affected my enjoyment of it such as it was um, which 
which was that a production IG gave us a very sweet 21-minute short um, called Walking Meat, uh, which was so repulsive that we could only show it at an 18-rated screening. Um, and so it got shoved on before um, Calamity of a Zombie Girl. And so, and I, so I had to explain to the audience, you know, you, you don't vote for the first film. You have to decide on the second film. The trouble is, is the first film is beautifully self-contained. It checks itself out before you can get bored with it. It's very kinetic and fast-moving and witty. And then you then go straight into Calamity of a Zombie Girl, um, which just drag, it takes, it, feel, it felt like 10 minutes before the credits even started to roll. And it was very slow, you know, and, and I, just, you know, I lost interest very quickly because I was busy comparing it with a film I wasn't supposed to compare it with. Walking and Me also had real zombies that we could recognise. Yeah. I feel like in Calamity of a Zombie Girl, they could call it Calamity of a Vampire Girl mm. or Calamity of a Ghoul Girl. It didn't really matter because it never fit, like, fit into any like actual definition of what mm. we'd recognise. Like... They weren't like the Walking Dead zombies. They were just super-powered humans mm. that could take their heads off, and it was quite funny. <laughs> yeah. And you, you said yourself in the deliberations that it reminded you of, a, of an old-school OAV, and presumably also yeah. in terms of the animation. And, um, yeah, very and, much in terms and, of the and animation. Kim, you said that it felt a bit naughty for you. Yes, so the character de- designs in particular, um, don't they remind you of Scride? Um, Gundam Seed, things like that. Uh, it's not the same guy, mm. but very reminiscent of those old school character designs. And there's a reason why those character designs aren't used so much anymore because they're not very expressive. They don't lend itself to good reactions. So watching these essentially blank slate characters get knocked off one after another, there's not really the same kind of fun, is there? That's a fair point, actually. I hadn't thought of the actual art style. I should say, I've not seen the films, but going on what I've seen, trailers or visuals, and what you said about the look of it, just from thinking of the key visual, that actually resonates with me a lot, and I can understand that. We, we have a, a problem, as all film festivals do now, with um, the, the disruption of film itself. Um, so we have to deal constantly with whether or not we should show a TV show on a cinema screen, which I think we'll come to later on, um, and whether or not uh, a video should be blown up to, to cinema screen size. And I, I really got the feeling with, with Zombie Girl that we were watching something that had been made for a television screen yeah. that had been inflated um, to, a, to a cinema environment. I just think it was so ridiculous and so crazy and out there that it was it was amusing. Like it was really funny because it was so stupid. You ended up saying, Roxy, that it was so bad it was good. Yeah. Uh, which which is something that we uh, historically were starting to deal with a lot more in the festival. So, for example, this year we showed Cyber City Oedo uh, 808, um, which was a notoriously horrible manga entertainment release uh, of the beer and curry era. But so many of the things that made it objectionable. 20 years ago, now make it a fun night out for everybody. And they've actually showed it twice at the festival and it's had a fantastic response. Um, so, you know, maybe in 20 years' time, people will look back at Calamity of a Zombie Girl and say, ah, oh, those were the days. <laughs> I, I hope not, because we're all in trouble. Yeah, I, um, I said at the uh, deliberations that um, it felt like the sort of movie that, um, like, nowadays, people don't watch The Room because they want to watch The Room. They put it in cinemas at midnight people like come to like to like join in on all their favorite quotes from the movie and i feel like calamity of zombie girl could be that 
like people could bring along like basketballs for the <laughs> bizarre sudden basketball game scene where they dunk uh, one of the zombies' heads through a ring. Yeah. I was really hoping that's what you were going to say yeah. when you mentioned basketball. It is exactly not that. That. I was hoping you were going yeah. to say that. But, but essentially what you're all saying is that to enjoy this film in any way, you have to subvert the creator's original intentions. Um, yeah. yeah, which I'm not totally sure. There's a part of me that thinks maybe this was intentional. Maybe it was made intentionally schlocky and kind yeah. of... I mean, maybe I'm giving it too much credit, but I, always, I just assumed the same of thinking, like, yeah. I feel like this is the entire point of it. We've come this far and we haven't even talked about the incest, so... No. <laughs> no. Kudos to That was a left turn. Yeah. <laughs> it was a left turn in the movie. <laughs> Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go, Kim. Well, it's just it's a testament to how crazy the film was. That even when the the brother and sister characters were passionately making out, it wasn't really that it surprising was, anymore. It, yeah, it was just another punchline. It was like, oh, those guys. Not after they, you know, battered a dog's head in. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was the shocking part of it. Uh, Al- Almar observed, since I'm here as the voice of Almar, that uh, every film in competition, whenever an animal showed up on screen, he felt a, cr- a collective relaxation and kind of, oh, sigh, go through the audience. The only exception being uh, the dog in Flaminic <laughs> uh which um, seemed to, you know, didn't make it very very far in the film, <laughs> and, and you know in horror films quite you know quite quite you know uh, famously, often the pets last longer than a lot of you know the ethnic minorities and people of colour. So like, <laughs> uh, so you know if if, if if there's a diverse film colour, I, I think what was it was it Independence Day where where where, ga- where gays were valued less highly than pets in terms of who got killed by the aliens, <laughs> and, and and this was this kind of. A, a big kind of core celebrity at the time. Whereas, whereas you know, in this film, and I'm sure Almar would say this is well, here, no, the pets don't last long, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably exactly how he would say it yeah. as well. There's a bit of a bait and switch when you think, oh, it's the zombie dog is going to be like the final villain with the stone inside of it, but then it turns out, no, it was no. actually the little sister. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a waste. <laughs> this was just hearing you guys discuss it. It feels like if I had a bingo card. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, right, yep, one of those, one of those. Check that. Well, maybe we should do that for the tenth anniversary. Actually, have a, fe- <laughs> actually have a festival bingo card of all the things that are likely to show up in the festival. Although I'm not quite sure how we could how we could police it. Just do it for fun, maybe. What would be the goal? I don't know. Having a bingo card that's full. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to go from that. No. Well, we, we did think one uh, one year about having a, uh, having a Jonathan Clements bingo card for my introductions, where if I you know if I accidentally say Hello London, if I introduce <laughs> if I introduce the wrong film, if I libel a member of the staff, you know anything like that, people can tick it off. But we figure that people are pretty much having their own games now in the introductions. So I feel like libel a member of staff is like a free space. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. I did hear there was apparently in the screening of Cyber City last night a drinking game of every time there was a swear word take a drink and by the end of the first episode people had to go back to the bar (laughs) (laughs) I did hear that going around Twitter last night so any other random thoughts about Calamity been good bad surprising it was a calamity (laughs) it was a calamity it it was uh, it got no votes at all uh, from the jury and the the jury have two votes each and there are um, four of them so there are eight votes to, to, to assign and Calamity got absolutely none so to wrap up Calamity then, in a slightly different way to usual, because I've been thinking about this, Jonathan, oh, very you, yeah. if you were perhaps going to in some way recommend this to someone, 
How would you try and sum it up to them in one sentence, just to encourage them to watch it? Be it if you know they're going to like or hate it, just how would you try and encourage them? Anime version of The Room, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I would have gone for anime version of Return of the Living Dead, but but, yeah, fair enough. I'd say watch, watch it with friends. I mean, it's available on Crunchyroll, isn't it? And if everyone could organise their own, like, movie nights mm. with this one. Play a drinking game with it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's how you could get it to work. So, next up, we uh, see when you become cannibals based on the title of uh, <laughs> I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. Andy, what in theory is the elevator pitch for this film? Yeah, so this isn't a horror story, like Clancy the Zombie Girl, even though it has a title to match it. Um, basically, it is the story of uh, a girl who has a, a pancreatic disease. Um, a boy who goes to the same school as her just happens to find her diary that reveals this because she's not told anybody outside of her family, none of her friends know. Um, they strike up a rather kind of odd friendship, like the girl is, uh, I, I think uh, Jonathan mentioned in his notes that uh, Roxy basically mentioned, called her kind of a manic pixie dream girl, basically, you know, she's your typical kind of energetic anime girl um, who's, you know, sort of uh, seemingly kind of perfect in so many ways. The guy is, is your typical... Apart from the fact that she's going to die very apart soon. From, yeah, yeah. Apart from and, and that's not a spoiler because the film begins with her funeral, so it's, yeah. it's, very, it's very clear from the, okay. from the outset that, that this is a doomed relationship. Yeah. Um, the boy, on the other hand, is kind of your typical anime loner. He doesn't really have any friends or kind of get on with anybody. He's very much bookish. But somehow they kind of fall together, mostly because the girl just kind of foists herself on this guy and just spends a lot of time hanging out with him. Of course, their relationship grows, etc., etc., and then the film kind of pulls a, a twist at, at the end. Like you know, again, no spoiler: the girl dies, but not in the way that you might have expected in the lead up to it. And uh, that's kind of the big emotional punch of it: is that it subverts your expectation of how it's going to end. Not entirely, but you know, the way it happens is is kind of a, a sucker punch, if you like. Uh, so yeah, basically, it's a kind of you know romantic drama um, with uh, with plenty of, of melodrama at the end of it. I don't know why, but when you said that she dies in a different way, the first thing that came to my mind after talking about Calamity was that she turns into a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> no, no zombies that would have vastly improved the film. <laughs> so who wants to begin with, with a, I was going to say a pancreas, but that's not the name of the film, but who wants to begin? So I want to begin with a bit of trivia, because I was reading an interview with the author just before I came here, he said the, the first thing he came up with for this story was the title and also the thought, I want to see if I can make people cry with a title like this. So you can see right from the beginning, very calculated, very manipulative. And um, that's my overriding impression of it after four viewings of it <laughs> in some form or another. Wow. <laughs> you also mentioned that he um, took a lot of inspiration from Hollywood movies. Right. So um, there's a part in the, in the movie where they play a game called Truth or Dare, and that will be familiar to all of us. But the voice actors didn't actually know that game at all, and they asked him, where did you come up with that game? How did you, how did you think of it? And he was like, oh, no, 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 I watched a lot of Hollywood dramas. And that's... Should have just taken full credit for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the movie is basically a Hollywood drama. Yeah. yeah. 
a good explanation for it. Um, maybe that's why it really appealed to the audience because it won the audience award. Yeah, I, I, it, it did indeed, and the the audience uh, reaction was incredibly positive. Uh, there were lots of there was lots of sniffling and sobbing in the mm. in the crowd, and and I think it does certainly appeal to a particular demographic, which I am not part of. <laughs> I was incredibly irritated by this film. <laughs> I, I spent most of the jury deliberations just sitting there waiting for someone to say anything negative about it at all. Um, because uh, for me, I, I did also find it manipulative. Um, uh, firstly, on, on Almar's behalf, I'll say that from a PR point of view, he said that he would. It, it, it's a film that he very much liked. I think he actually put a vote in for it. Didn't yeah, he? Yeah. Al- Almar voted for put, put one point in for it. Um, but he said that he, uh, from a PR point of view, the amount of money you would have to spend managing the expectations of the audience just away from the title um, would seriously disrupt any ability to sell it to people. Um, I personally have a problem with this you know, light novel tradition of having ridiculously long and misleading titles for things. Um, it makes it very difficult to write articles about them if you have to have you know, an entire sentence devoted to the title of the book every time you mention it. And it creates this sort of cultish attitude amongst fans. Like, oh, well, you, know, you, you need to know what the special you know, contraction is for the title before you really become a fan. <laughs> um, what irritated me most about this film, however, firstly, was a 17-year-old girl acting like a 12-year-old girl whose purpose is to die merely to wake up a weeb. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, I found the lead, and men, I think um, the uh, Callum in particular also found that the, the lead character incredibly irritating because he's, he's a, an absolutely pointless, characterless figure who inexplicably attracts the attention of a, of a girl who really adores him and wants to help him out in life, but not in any inconvenient way where they might actually have to have a future together. Um, but what I found the most irritating about it is that it's a pound shop Haruki Murakami novel. Um, it's so close to colourless Tsukuru Tazaki that it even has the same surprise ending. And it's so blatantly... I mean, the, the, this is a big reveal, but since we're doing spoilers, the, the, the lead character is basically nameless for the whole thing, pursued by a pixie dream girl for the whole thing, which is very Murakami anyway. And at the end, it's revealed that his name is actually Haruki. Yes. And... And I'm sitting there thinking, this is so obvious. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and I imagine the author sitting there looking at colourless Takuru Tazaki and thinking, well, that's out in 2014. I've got to write a novel next year. <laughs> um, what I'll do is I'll just rip this off completely because the audience of teenagers just won't know about this real book that's already out, that's a, you know international bestseller. And, and just to add insult to injury, I'm going to spend half the film telling them they should read more. <laughs> but, uh, and then you should go to libraries and you should read books because books are great. But yes, if you thought books were great, you would have already known about colourless Sakura Tazaki and you wouldn't be taken by surprise by anything that happens in this film. However, there is another book that is involved in the, the, the world of this film, which for Roxy in particular was a very important and, and moving component. Yeah, it's The Little Prince was a big part of this film. It's one of my favourite books. And towards the end, when she's dead and he's he's reading a letter from her, she like he enters a dream sequence where she is essentially the little prince going through the different asteroids. And hmm. basically, he's like it's a very nice, really perfect homage to that book because, you know, she travels between the planets. There's little references to the book. She's got fox earrings, like the fox that helps the little prince. And she dies dies in the same way as the little prince does and to me that was so beautiful that I started crying because it's just it was 
just so perfect that it so was really emotional. How many members of the jury cried after Al- watching Pancreas? Alma said he cried around the same time as as me. Al- like Al- it got Alma oh, blimey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, specifically, uh, there's a uh, diary scene and uh, where she she reveals that she was crying alone, and uh, well, like in conjunction with her smiling and having and trying to have this positive outward appearance this whole time, which got me, and I can see why it won the um, the audience awards and. Uh, I think part of it might be do, to do with um, how we vote. For instance, we saw it... Um, what day is it today? It's, it's Sunday. Sunday. It's a Sunday today. I can never tell. Um, <laughs> so we saw it on Friday, yeah. and then we voted on Saturday. So we had that day of deliberations, like, reflecting on it. How much of the film do we really... Like, was it just the ending that was impactful, whilst the start was just frustrating, which was where I was uh, at. Um, Whilst the audience, um, it's very hard to put a popsicle stick Mm. into a number two or a three or a one when you're currently, like, burying your face in tissues. Yes, but, I mean, that's what we do with the audience. The audience award is deliberately arranged that way to be someone's immediate visceral reaction to a film rather than our supposedly sensible debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Kim, you mentioned that uh, the the chronology of the of the film is very different in other versions. Yes. Yeah, so the anime version is very the closest the closer version to the original novel than the live action film. The live action film takes more liberties with the chronology and when things happen. It bookends the story with um parts where you see the main character working as an adult, as a teacher, and you've seen how he has grown, and he actually hasn't seen the second, more personal part of uh, Sakura's diary message Mm. at this stage of his life. Mm. He only finds it at the very end of the story as an adult, and I think in terms of how the narrative is paced, it makes doesn't make it feel as belaboured. That whole part of just one heartfelt message after another, which lasted for about half an hour of the film screen time. <laughs> I was getting very tired by the end of it. <laughs> I'd just like to point out two things to be the, to be the, the human downer on this. Firstly, the the version that you describe is also a Murakami ripoff from Pimple nineteen seventy three and Norwegian Wood, um, with with, with the, there being a, a time lapse yes. between his his realization of what he's lost basically and, and how that might change him. Um, but also, uh, as regards Antoine de Saint Exupéry, mm. um, the Little Prince, this this book was first published in twenty fifteen, right? Was it twenty fifteen? Either 2015 or 2016. Okay. So another element of cynical manipulation um, (laughs) at work here might be the fact that The Little Prince was regarded by many people as coming out of copyright in 2015. Oh. (laughs) Unfortunately, it hasn't come out of copyright. And a a lot of people were taken greatly by surprise by this. Under European law, uh, a a book remains in copyright and the estate continues to accrue royalties for 70 years after the death of an author, and, and Saint-Exupéry died during the war. Um, however, under French law, there is an additional clause whereby if someone dies in military service, the copyright term of their book 
extends for a hundred years after well, their death. Yeah. On the understanding they probably died quite young and their family uh, needs longer yeah. to kind of uh, capitalise on, on what their authorial income might have been. So if I were a producer in the West buying the rights to this film, my main concern would be how much of The Little Prince has been cleared. I mean, it's a loving pastiche. And I think that a lawyer could argue that there is nothing in this work that detracts in any way from The Little Prince and that it may well send people off to read it and that, in fact, it counts as a form of advertising. However, if you wanted to be a really difficult French lawyer, you could also call it an unlicensed rip-off that someone's going to have to pay for at some point. I mean, I guess you could liken Sakura to The Little Prince anyway in the story because <clears throat> The Little Prince arrives suddenly into Sonic Supri's life and basically... Mm. Um, tells him his story, how he got there, and helps him to grow as a person by the end, and by the end he dies. Mm. And I think that's very similar to what happens to Sakura in this whole film, so that's actually a very good point. Two quick questions that popped <clears throat> in my brain. The title of the film, I'm not sure if Almar had any thoughts on it either, does it help or hinder it? Well, Almar's thoughts were that it totally hindered it, because from a PR point of view, you spend the first paragraph of any article explaining it's not a zombie film. Um, <laughs> and it, it, uh, some people, I'm sure, will be lured in by, you know, what is this strange thing? But this, that's, that, you know, you, that's only a trick you can play occasionally. And in the anime world, people are playing it every season. And, uh, and uh, when I heard the title, the first thing I thought was, oh, God, you know, another <laughs> sodding... Uh, <sighs> shell game that someone's playing um, trying to lure me in because uh, the, the impression that it gives me as an ageing cynic is there must be, this must be awful because they're trying so hard with the title that's, that, that's what I take away from it it's not true the title is uh, relevant to the story uh, Kim's point about it being deliberately manipulative only seems to reinforce my point about it being annoying to a lot of readers but I'm sure the thing we have to bear in mind with all the films in competition this year, they will all mean everything to a certain sector of the audience and to the audience that this film is aimed at it seems perfectly judged yeah mm. the second question I had unless there's anything anyone wants to add to that at all no just, uh, rather no. just moving on so instantly just want to ask what was your first impression of the story after hearing about its title not watching it or anything I groaned. I think yeah. I, I think I remember going, oh, okay, I, I see. It wasn't yeah. a, oh, well, that's genius, brilliant. <laughs> I must see this. Yes. Yeah, I was the same. I, I, there's something else that I'd like to add as well, which, which actually I don't think came up in deliberations yesterday as well, is that I saw this in Glasgow, um, and the script is remarkably witty. The audience were laughing a hell of a lot in Glasgow. I, I didn't see it in Edinburgh, but yeah, the, 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 the Glasgow one. audience were wetting themselves at many of the instances. The, the dialogue is very snappy and it is remarkably humorous in something that is not supposed to be a, a, a funny film. It is actually, it does make you laugh a hell of a lot. Mm. I think that's why Sakura is so charming as a character, is that she just... She has it, wit. Yeah, she's just so funny and exudes such a happy, like, happiness that... Yeah. You just enjoy spending time with her, which is why I really didn't care about the lead guy at all for the whole <laughs> film. I thought, and um, he doesn't really, he could be replaced by anyone. In well, I think he's supposed to be replaced yes, by anyone. Yeah, yeah. This is practically a second person novel yeah, uh, where, yeah. where it's addressing you, the reader, and you, the reader, the implied reader, is, you know, a 17 year old boy who hasn't got any friends and, you know, doesn't want to talk to anyone. And, but basically, you know, all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this sort of leads nicely onto the next question I was going to ask was given from what you guys have said and again I've not seen this film seems very very deep and 
perhaps the translation involved, I imagine, would have to be very on point. How was that? Or were there any things maybe you wish could be changed? Or So the translation in general, very good, very witty, does capture the, the nature of the characters. There's one part that I think, uh, one aspect of the translation I think is a bit worthy of discussion. Um, in When asked what the relationship between Sakura and the guy is, she always insists that they are nakayoshi, and that is translated as friends. But the whole point of the relationship, as revealed at the end, is they were neither friends nor lovers. There was something else, something deeper than that. And so the term nakayoshi, uh, I've seen it translated as pals before. Pals would be nice. We're just pals, not friends. And also as mates. Uh, it is a very difficult nuance between tomodachi and, and nakayoshi. And, uh, of course, with the Japanese, in a very British way with the Japanese, to outright state that someone is your friend is kind of gauche and... Uh, and odd, and, and, and people who have known each other for 20 years still use honorifics when they talk to each other. Um, and yet there's also, in a very British way, the more you insult someone, the more friendly you must be with them. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very odd and, and, and complex uh, way of, of social interaction, which is why people get so confused with the British and the Japanese uh, in, the, in the way that they deal with one another. Um, and Kim brought this up last night, and I, I wondered if, if Nakayoshi was, was some kind of friend-zoning or it could be yeah. felt as some kind of friend zoning in Japanese, and, and even if it, even if it's not, as a translator, given that we're only dealing with a very limited subtitle line here, is there a way of fixing that, or is basically friend the best you can hope for uh, in in the context that it's only going to be on screen for a couple of seconds, and it's something that needs to be you know to be subtitleable? So, for me, when I read the novel and kept seeing this nakayoshi word my perception of the relationship was that there was a bit of distance, that they could not put their feelings into a box because if they did, they would be creating some kind of boundary and they would have to put a name to their relationship. By using the word nakayoshi, there's some kind of vagueness to it. And like when she first texts him after they first get involved, she says... Um, get along with me until I die. I think, no. Uh, but she uses the words like nakayoku, mm -hmm. which is very, you know, grammatically related to nakayoshi. Yeah. And that is why she uses that word. It's like getting along. Now, if you'd said this in English, oh yes, this is someone I get along with. It yeah. is both cumbersome and vague to a point of frustration. Hmm. So... Hmm. I want to know, how do you guys perceive the relationship and what kind of label would you guys put on it? Um, well, through the film, uh, I th like, I was mistaken uh, and I thought that um, she was uh, constantly trying to get him to say friends. So um, with the, so use, the subtitles usage of the word friend, I thought that she was just um, kind of beating him down with it, just saying, we're friends, we're friends, we're friends, just waiting until he like replied, okay, okay, we're friends. But yeah, it turns out she was more understanding and it wasn't as, like, it was not going to put their relationship into the box of friends and was happy with the situation. 
But even if you thought that was what she was trying to do by calling him a friend the whole time, did you not feel like that they weren't really friends in that yeah, kind it, of way? It felt like a one-sided friendship that she really wanted mm. to get him to to open up to her and be close to her. That was like I agree with Callum. That's what I got from the the film. Yeah. And and once you actually explained that mistranslation to us, that kind well, of it's not changed. A mistranslation. It's still it's correct. a nuance. Oh, it's, it's a, a nuance, nuance yeah. of the translation that it, like it kind of changed we my said perspective. In, in, translating Roxy's words for them. <laughs> <laughs> It just it just changed my perspective on the whole film. Uh, I'd like to bring something. I mean, Kim Kim kind of raised this a little bit last night, and I, it's only just occurred to me really that this might be relevant. Is that uh, Russell T Davis of, of Doctor mm. Who fan, yeah. uh, Doctor Who fame, but also of uh, a queerest folk fame? He, he said something once, which has always stayed with me, whenever I'm I'm, I'm working in fiction, um, which is he said there is always a heterosexuality to drama, mm. um, that if you have a man and a woman in a film there will be a unrequited love or a, an unspoken tension or a romance about to develop. But it's always assumed that that's what will happen, which is why you know, when adverts show two men together drinking beer, it's gay, but three men drinking beer together, they're friends. <laughs> and, and, and so advertising companies you know, who, who don't want to appeal to the, to the, to the gay vote will, will deliberately try and find some way of setting up the, the, on, the, the mise-en-scene in such a way uh, as to imply that these people aren't in a romance because two men having a beer together could look a bit weird. This, this, is, this is not my feeling. This is how advertising works. And so what you, what you have with these two characters is that in pretty much any other film, this would be two people who are going to fall in love, who are going to have sex, who are, who are, who are going to have some kind of relationship. But... but, but, but that doesn't happen. Mm. Um, and I think if you're going in expecting a, rom a, a traditional romance or for, for one, a conservative romance, let's say, you're yeah. not going to get it. I also think that uh, because of like the several scenes throughout the movie that would make it really, really uncomfortable if it ever got to romance, it's uncomfortable mm. enough already. There's this particular scene when um, they aren't really able to express their feelings towards each other and they kind of have like these frustrating moments where um, uh, which results in the main character pinning um, the female lead down mm. and her going, oh, is this a, is this a joke? Mm. And then it continues mm. and then she's like, you're hurting me. And then it continues, and then eventually, like, she basically has to throw him off. And then they go outside, some other guy comes along, drama, drama, drama. Mm. And it eventually ends up with her apologising to him. Yeah. yeah. What? So, yeah. so, yeah. so, if, so those of you who are long-term listeners will remember the unpleasantness we had with Wings of Oniarmis a few years ago, when we show Wings mm. of Oniarmis uncut. Uh, to a festival crowd, and it included the sexual assault scene, which is which is which in many territories and in many many versions has been excised from the film as as being irrelevant to the film. Yeah. Um, it actually puts the certificate up an entire grade, and it creates a very similar situation where the, the lead character pins this woman down, and they and something almost happens, and it doesn't, and then the next day, she apologizes to him. Yeah, that made me very uncomfortable watching that scene. Yeah. really, and like. Whilst my impressions of the film by at, at the very end were positive, once I'd like got back to the hotel room and just thought about it, I was like, I 
I can't actually forgive that main character. There is no point within that film that he at all apologizes for any of his actions, mm. makes up for them in any way. Mm. He he basically just turns up. She asks him to go somewhere. He's there. Like that's that's not making up for any mistakes and letting her apologize to him was so it put me off so much. So I spent a large portion of the film being frustrated with it. Mm. And then a small bit going, oh, no. This is something that's come up before with fireworks, and it may well come up again with Penguin Highway as well, is, mm. is that the, the degree to which you're prepared to pre- present a realistic or naturalistic uh, perspective on human relationships is significantly compromised these days by um, our growing awareness in the arts of uh, gender politics, of mm. Me Too, um, I mean, I'm wondering if the, the Japanese are just, you know, a few years behind. Uh, I don't see this happening in a Western film anymore. I, don't, I, I, do, yeah, don't, I, don't I see it happening in a film yeah. in the 1970s uh, and passing without comment. The fact that it doesn't pass without comment now is something that I don't think the Japanese filmmakers have really woken up to yet in the international market. Um, my perception of that scene is that I am was actually... That was actually the most interesting part for me in terms of the human relationships because I felt in that scene it broke the template but the fact that it never followed through on that was frustrating and, and that, that's really what I'm, what I'm getting to is that when you choose to put a scene like that in the film then uh, you, you also have a number of choices as to how you resolve it and how you deal with it later yeah. on um, and uh, something that we had last year with fireworks and something that I think maybe we have this year with Penguin Highway as well is that that is not resolved. But as the filmmaker, particularly in animation, you are picking every single frame that appears on screen and every single moment of dialogue. You have every opportunity to confront that in a more progressive way. And if you choose not to, that is your choice. Yeah. It's interesting just listening to this, knowing how much people have loved the film mm. yeah. and that, yeah. that scene has not impacted people's overall view of it as much that, perhaps as it did. Yeah, that's what I said earlier about um, how our voting takes place. Um, I'm not going to claim that all of the audience members entirely forgot about that and then went home and go, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Maybe they did. Maybe they but, did. And what but... you described last night, Callum, was, was, was a fridge moment. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, Alfred Hitchcock says, you know, he, his job uh, was to entertain you for the price of the ticket and for the duration of the film. And if, you know, five hours later you wander down to the fridge and open the door to get some lemonade and suddenly go, hang on a minute, <laughs> that's not really his problem. Um, and and, uh, and, I, and I, I certainly wouldn't blame the audience for their immediacy of, of voting. That's what we want them to do. We want yeah. them to vote with their hearts as they leave the cinema. And it's a very weepy ending and it's a very uplifting ending, I suppose, for those people who aren't me. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, uh, and the audience absolutely loved it. And, and if they changed their mind uh, five hours later or, or reflected on it five hours later, that's not what the audience award is for. I also want to point out that the way this scene was contextualised within the film makes you kind of, as a viewer, take less focus, put less focus on that bed scene because it's immediately followed by a scene where the clingy ex-boyfriend attacks the guy and you're presented with another version of a male character who is more, I guess, rapey. Mm. (laughs) And it makes you want to forgive 
the other guy. So we're talking about degrees of rapey at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so this, this film has no problems whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> we want you to pick the least rapey. <laughs> Welcome to Japan. <laughs> so before I ask you all to give your sort of how would you tell, what would you tell people to try and encourage them to watch it? Because I'll give you a moment to let you think about it rather than just throwing it on you this time. Any other parts of the film you want to make mention of? Any perhaps standout moments or anything in particular you want to make note of? Um, just just something that, that uh, I noticed. I, I've been writing a book on Little Norse Prince for Andrew, which is going to be coming out next year, which very famously has two sequences, two montage sequences of stills because they ran out of money. And it was quite a surprise to me to, to see in, in Pancreas two montage sequences comprising largely stills. Mm. Um, it may well have been a directorial choice uh, they, they go on holiday to Hakata uh, on this little kind of away break um, uh, and uh, the, all the Hakata scenery is, is done in, I don't know, about 20 frames of, of just, you know, here's us going to a, a restaurant, here's us on a, uh, in a fairground, here's us doing stuff and uh, my, my suspicion from a production point of view is that we haven't got any money, sod it, or, or, or possibly even we were hoping the Hakata Tourist Board would pay us to make this more interesting. <laughs> but they haven't given us any cash, so sod it, we'll just cover it in a few months. I mean, does that, does that happen in the novel, Kim? Is, is, do they go to Hakata in the novel? Um, do, do you mean that part where they went to... Uh... The Hilton? Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. that is an integral part of it. Right. But yeah. the way the film of the, the novel is mostly told is through dialogue. There is barely any descriptions in this novel. So it is from a... If you're putting this into visuals, I think that putting things into montage and having characters talk over that was a way of dealing with the limitations of this... The, well, the writing ability of this book. Any other moments that people want to make mention of? I, I find it really hard to believe that she can afford to stay at the Hilton. <laughs> <laughs> That's what sure. you take away from that, it. <laughs> I was constantly thinking, like, how is she getting this money? Her, like, well, her parents... Have been on Booking.com, maybe? Or? Yeah, she's got, got a discount. <laughs> Found a special offer somewhere. Yeah. Is this turning into an ad now? Well, I mean, this is very, very common in anime that there will yeah. be all, all kinds of uh, context integration and, and product placement. I mean, most famously in Kaon, which was paid for by a Japanese airline, which has the which is a heavy investor in the Ibis hotel chain. You get everyone flying on on is it JAL or ANA on Kaon? I can never remember. But they fly on this particular Japanese airline. There's four minutes of them sitting on a plane, and they get to London and they spend the next five minutes wandering around London trying to find their hotel repeating its name over and over again to various taxi drivers and you know people have you found the Ibis is the Ibis over there no do you know where the Ibis is oh well there's two Ibises in London there's a very nice one (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know and that's uh, uh, something that I have to deal with in my day job in National Geographic I I have a TV show in China that's paid for by Buick and we have to have I think 32 seconds in every episode where the the Buick is 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 on screen. You riding in a Buick. Me riding in a Buick. Me, me crashing a Buick into the <laughs> into the Chairman Mao's from tomb. I, I, you know, all, all kinds of things. Um, and, and this is a great way for producers to monetize. And and, and Holy Land tourism in in Japan uh, is. I mean, I, I think this this is probably an issue in. Uh, Mirai as well. I mean, Mirai is set in uh, Yokohama. I, I bet someone in the Yokohama tourist board is going. Let's make sure it's in Yokohama. Let's just bung them some cash, and then we'll, and then we'll get people coming to see the sites that are in the film. I thought the set the setting of the hotel part was Fukuoka. 
Yes, it's, yes, it's, it's Hakata. Yeah, okay. Uh, but Hakata and Fukuoka are basically the same place to me. I, I think it's because the bullet train station is in one town. Yes, 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 and, yes, uh, yes. And, the, and the place yeah. is the other, but yeah. Um, I don't think the Hilton was mentioned by name. In the book? <laughs> no, but oh, okay. it was said to be a very rich, expensive hotel. And she got the money from her mother... Because her mother was like, you can do whatever you want because you're in your last days. So yeah. oh, she, she does actually say that in the film. Well, not specifically Richard the Hilton, but she says, I can get whatever I want out of my mum because she's just crying all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she does say that. Yeah. I do feel sorry for the mother now. That's giving it like, a yeah, well, perspective. See, if this was a Naoko Yamada film, we'd be focusing on the mother rather yeah. than rather than her, her daughter's weird behaviour. <laughs> uh, any additional thoughts? No, I'm good. Let's cool. let it rest. So how do we? How do you pitch the film to a friend or potentially a group of people to try, try and encourage them to watch it? Um, on the cover of the book, um, in the version that I bought, there is a subtitle saying, "Once you learn the meaning of the title, you will cry." Very bold of them to say, <laughs> but that's probably how I would um, pitch it. Yeah, it's got a weird title, and you'll cry at it. Like, find out how. It's like. It's like a BuzzFeed title. It's a clickbaity yeah. title <laughs> that's a very markety. Uh, you can actually imagine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but to the audience, certainly that I sat in in, in Glasgow, that was a, a guarantee they wouldn't have to return your money on because they, mm-hmm. they were sobbing away. Yeah, same with Edinburgh. I mean, it would be the same thing, really. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to some penguins then as we delve into Penguin Highway. Andy. What's the elevator pitch for this film, in, um, in theory? Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to get too dense into it because it goes some places. Uh, but basically, Penguin Highway is about a precocious young boy um, who, you know, he's, he's kind of smart, but perhaps not quite as smart as he thinks he is. Um, he has a strange <laughs> obsession with the, the dental nurse that he sees at his dentist quite often. Um, and, uh, Come on, we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, so like the town that he lives in, penguins start appearing, um, and uh, obviously this is not a normal thing in any Japanese town. Um, and so, kind of, he endeavours with uh, with some kind of friends that he makes to to investigate this. And uh, needless to say, there are some rather bizarre reasons why these penguins are, are appearing, and you know where they're coming from, what they represent, etc., etc. Um, it's from a, a book written by the author of Night Short Walk On Girl, Tatami Galaxy, in the Eccentric Family, which is probably the closest kind of relation, I'd say, Eccentric Family to this. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it, so I feel like I'll defer to the others to kind of dig deeper into exactly where it goes, because it's, uh, you know, it's not just about cute penguins. I, I think we're going to have to spoil it in order to discuss it properly. I was halfway yeah. through introducing it and I realised there was no way I could say what I wanted to say about this film mm. without actually ruining part of the experience for a lot of the audience. So I deliberately, I don't know if you saw it, kind of stopped on stage. Yeah, yeah. I went, oh, sod this, uh, you know, blah, blah, okay, bye, bye, bye. Because this is a first contact story. This, uh, the, the, the penguins are a manifestation of, a, of, a, of some kind of alien craft. Um, and I, I very much like that um, in, in the sense that uh, if this was Arrival or Contact, the story would be about the, uh, the, the heroic researchers who are trying to make contact with these aliens. And in fact, the, and these heroic researchers are around, but they're completely background characters who just kind of... And, yeah. and no one cares about that because, because it's focused on a 10-year-old boy and because 
he is unaware of just how complex the situation is that he's found himself in. He treats it like any other adventure, like going to the park or, you know, I don't know, teasing small animals or whatever it is that the boys do. So, so him and his friends are investigating this, this thing. Um, and uh, uh, the thing that it reminded me most of, actually, was Flatland, the, uh, the 19th century novel about a, a three-dimensional uh, being that visits a two-dimensional space. So you have these squares, talk, you know, walking around talking about being squares, and a sphere visits them. But because it's a sphere and they're only li- living in two dimensions, um, it looks like a circle to them, and they don't understand the spherical nature of this thing. And of course, what and the, the alien craft itself is manifests as a sphere, uh, as this big sphere of water that's kind of out in the forest. Um, and, and that's just quite lovely for me because. Uh, part of the problem with explaining this film is that that is basically the plot right the way up to the last 15 minutes the the discovery of this thing and the slow revelation of what these penguins are which is a kind of magic realist effect I ended up quoting Clark's third law and saying that uh, any any sufficiently advanced society and technology is indistinguishable from magic realism Uh, it's not magic, it's magic realism now the, the, the penguins uh, and the sphere and the Jabberwocky creatures that are wandering the town and the fact that the town itself appears to have been encased in some kind of pocket universe as well. I mean, one of the characters makes this off-screen revelation that the path goes right the way around the town and comes back again, yeah. uh, which no one ever talks about again. Um, <laughs> it, it's fantastic. And, and, but, and it's a very, I think, naturalistic um, uh, approach to a story which is often presented in quite a patronising way that aliens are a puzzle to be cracked, but if you're smart enough and you're a, yeah. you're a human hero, you can you can break through. And in fact, there is no breakthrough in this film, really. They, they, they don't really communicate. There There is no... Uh, it, it's the beginning of something, as in the original story of um, Arrival. It's the beginning of something, but not necessarily the end. And uh, the film effectively reduces us all to 10-year-olds, unable to comprehend what's going on, which I think is very nicely done. Hmm. Um, I want to add that the fil- that the book won the 2010 Science Fiction Award, and the Salem, um, the SF title. Oh, the SF title. Okay. So I was when I first read it, I my first thought was, how is this science fiction? This could be a fantasy, mm. and um, I mean, it's really not useful to really like belabor the the difference between science fiction and fantasy. But so much of the book is just slice of life moments, just living this boy's life. And there is basically no urgency to the plot at all. Until, it's a very lazy summer. Isn't yes, it? <laughs> until like the last 20, 15 minutes of the film. And I could see this being an off-putting element to audience viewers. But from my perspective, especially as someone who has read the book and cried and just loved this book so much, I thought that it, the film perfectly captured that feeling of a lazy summer mm. and the kind of adventures that you'd get up to. Yeah. Um, there was uh, large segments of it where they're just... Um, he gets completely diverted yeah. from researching the penguins yeah, they even, this other thing. They even, <laughs> she even specifically walks up and says, you've been slacking on our research project to look at this big ball of water. <laughs> but um, it all ties in and, I yeah, it's um, kind of the mundanity 
of it. I'm not sure if that's actually a word. Um, it is now. It <laughs> is. Uh, if it's not, then it is now. Um, it um, sells it as a childhood adventure, as a uh, kids going off. They have their own little hand-drawn map of the uh, of the town and how everything works. And um, exploring, they go talk to the neighbours. Mm. Like, it sells it as less of the science fiction that I would expect or the mm. science fiction that I'd look for on Netflix or something mm. and more of the um, yeah the, of the sort of adventure stories that I want to see uh, I think like Mirai in some ways this is also going to be a very difficult film to sell because it's about yes. 10 year olds but it's not for 10 year olds I think it's, mm. it's, a, it's a was actually going to be one of my questions in a few minutes mm. is it feels like this could be aimed at children, but then mm. it yeah. also sounds like it shouldn't be aimed at children at the same time. Yeah, there was some kids uh, when uh, we watched it in Japan. Uh, there was some kids in that theater, um, but it definitely seemed like uh, it was the parents that were more engaged in the movie. Mm. Oh, so you, you actually saw it before this, then? Yeah, this is my second time watching oh, okay. it. Yeah, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. I, I thought that because. Okay, penguins are my favourite animal. I thought that um, I was just so smitten by the penguins. There were some scenes that I wasn't even paying attention to what was going on because there was a penguin bursting a bubble in the background. Um, And I thought, look, I had a hell of a time with that. I'm going to go to Scotland Loves Anime and I'm going to actually properly watch it and try and take more of the narrative, uh, more of the science fiction-y elements that I should have been paying attention to in the first place. And I actually enjoyed it more because a lot of the themes... I enjoyed this film now that I'm paying attention. (laughs) Now that I'm paying attention to more than just Penguins, it turns out it's actually great as a film as well. Um, I think uh, one of the things that really stood out to me in my second viewing is... um, uh, Aoyama is the character's name, I think. Um, His insistence that the unnamed lady or Anir-san, um, her, his insistence that she try and protect herself and that she um, try to like not summon any more penguins because she's the one creating the penguins. Um, that really stood out to me because deep down, I mean, we've all seen these sort of films where like you team up with some extraterrestrial force and then once the adventure is over, they disappear. And he never wanted to get to that point. He, did, he didn't want her to go. Yeah, yeah, he never wanted her to go. He never wanted her to get caught. Uh, his dad kept on giving him the, this advice for like how to solve a mystery, but there was some. Uh, but he always like found that kind of blockade. And uh, at one point, he's like, "Let's stop." Let's just stop the adventure, mm. and then it goes all glum. And I, I actually stuff. found it a, a much more romantic film than "Let Me Eat Your Pancreas." <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for that reason, I mean, it's a very platonic love between them. Well, it, it, maybe it isn't because he's, he's really not sure. But but you know, there, there is this adoration between them, which is which is doomed to end in very, in a very similar way. In fact, but sorry, Roxy, you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say that as Aoyama as a character was so charming and like. I think you said last night, the fact that he's a 10-year-old trying to act like an adult. Mm. He's trying to be smarter than he really is and figure out all these yes. uh, mysteries. That's and, what really drew me to him. And and I think, yeah, it's kind of, that's why it feels like it's not for children, because mm. he's mm. 
And it's very difficult as well to write and perform a character who can be charmingly self-regarding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he is. But he is. It's cute that he thinks he's so cool. Yeah. Whereas with most anime protagonists, it's not cute at all. Yeah. yeah. I think in the, what, in the first scene, he's talking about how smart he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he's going to win a Nobel Prize or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is. And that, that moment, I was like, I love this character. Yeah. Like, he's so, so full of himself. It's, it's just so and, and, and true to anime form, there's a girl next door. You know, yeah. In, in, in yeah. his classroom, there's a girl who's actually smarter than he is, although he hasn't worked this out. <laughs> uh, he, he doesn't understand why she keeps beating him at chess. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and, and she, she's very very plainly into him as well but he's completely oblivious because he's busy trying to be more adult than, than he really is it's very very sweet so one element which I think should be discussed just based on what's been said and Andy's introduction to this as well is the fact it is an adaptation of a novel by Morini yes. Yes. Morini yes in terms of it being an adaptation how does it compare in terms of how successful it is in your opinion compared to past adaptations of his work I actually wrote an article about all of the anime adaptations of Morami books. And it's like I planned a cheap plug yes. here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in my personal opinion, it is a superior adaptation to Night is Short, Walk or Girl. I yep. love that film. Uh, yep. It is a film that works... Pu- uh, Night is Short works purely as a film of visual spectacle. Um but you can't actually sit down and analyse its themes because it's all very mushed together, the whole experience. Um, Penguin Highway condenses a lot of things from the book, but it still presents everything that was important and it puts them in context, the context that you need to understand it, even in abridged form. I, um, In terms of the TV adaptation, Compared to the TV adaptations, well, there's different. They all have different time allotments to them. Um, my favourite adaptation is still the Tatami Galaxy because of the liberties that were taken with it. I also want to mention that the same person has been the person adapting them all. So it's, yes, it's, it's still the same person doing it. So it's, he's, this guy, uh, Makoto yeah. Ueda, is a very, very good screenwriter. And all of the adaptations are great in their own way. Even Night is Short. <laughs> <laughs> I do think Morami's gone really, really lucky in terms of uh, the sort of directors that he's had um, uh, working on his stuff. Uh, he's had Yuasa, um, I can't remember his name, Masayuki Yoshihara? Yuasa. No, uh, for Eccentric Family. Oh, okay. Yeah, the PA Works uh, animation expert guy. And I he's forgot. got Hiryasa Ishida here. And yeah, Hiryasa Ishida, yeah, who you mentioned is uh, this kind of like upstart who's been in the industry since a teenager. Yeah, yeah, he was winning awards at 19. Um, yeah. And he's only 30 now, so he's got a lot ahead of him. And uh, one of the founders of Studio Colorido as well. Yeah, and, can, and it's been really good to see uh, Colorido grow. They started out doing um, lots of like little commercials the McDonald's and short films. They, yeah, <laughs> so if you visit Japan, I'm not sure if um, they have them as much around anymore, but um, they have Studio Colorido, uh, the character designs, and sometimes they'll like have little animations, um, even on the TVs there, and I think they still play on TV occasionally. 
But yeah, Colorado had created the recruitment advertising campaign for McDonald's Japan. Oh. That one is really... I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> they also did puzzles and dragons and stuff. So seeing them take all of the skills and all of the um, charm that needs to be put into 15 seconds of commercial and kind of expanding that into a film and having, like, for like as you said, uh, Makoto... Ueda, Ueda, and um, Morami's original source material, having all of this to work in with really let them uh, as their own, just shove their own charm into it. And there's so many like small moments um, that like if you've seen uh, Fumiko's Confession, the short film, there's there's a uh, little um, hints of that that you see. It has um, the Ishida shot um, there's a film... Oh, the 3D th- camera tracking. Yeah, yeah, 3D camera tracking as loads of bizarre stuff happens al- along the sides. He did the same in a film called Hinata no Aoshigure, um, which was about a guy, a, a small kid, kind of similar, like a small kid um, who really likes this girl and they really like taking care of birds together. So he flies on this huge magical birds to <laughs> chase after his train to say, like, oh, I really like you, or whatever he ends up saying. It's been a while. But, yeah, it's been really, really good to see Studio Colorado grow, and I'm so glad that they're doing films and not TV anime like so many other studios. It's also worth mentioning that Studio Colorado is, well, is it one of the only studios that is everyone uses the tablet? Yeah, 100% digital studio. So, Roxy... You said you love Night is Short. How does Penguin Highway compare for you? I think Night is Short was such a crazy adventure that it was, it just, I just kind of got blown away by that. And it was very much the visuals that really mm. got to me. I thought it was just so beautifully done. And Penguin Highway was, is, is more story based for me. Like, I think the narrative is, is much more, there's much more to it, and the characters are more charming. and. I, I like I would like films that have these kind of adventures to it, like mm. things like and Aoyama is just such an adorable character, so that's why I really enjoyed it. And the penguins, I love those penguins. <laughs> so you given the perfect segue into the next question: How were the penguins? Because mentioned earlier about when animals appeared on screen uh, during Calamity, I think it was perhaps a bit of light relief, except for the dog. <laughs> uh, how did the penguins compare? And how, how would it be? I mean, you said you were distracted by them the first time I, I saw was, it, so yeah. <laughs> how were the penguins on the big screen? Kim has constantly taunted me by saying the film didn't have to be about penguins. It would have, it would have been <laughs> just, uh, just as good without the penguins, but I 100% disagree. I, I think there is um, a large free, like, uh, you've asked us to um, explain the appeal and how we would sell these films to other people. I think the posters do that really well because they don't show the 10-year-old child like um, front and centre. I think there's one poster where there's a penguin in the middle middle, and there's another poster where it's a penguin kind of with its back to you and then the two two, uh, main characters kind of a bit further away along the path but the camera is firmly like Mm -hmm. sitting on a penguin shoulder. Like walking through a park almost. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Like, so... The penguin is the appeal. As soon as you see those penguins, I think it's 
I think that's why um, in the Japanese theatre that we were in, why there were parents taking their children to it because the penguins are so cute. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the kind of what is it, basically the opening credits of the film is just this fantastic single penguin running through this town what? and kind yeah. of going on yeah. a little adventure, just roaming around. And like, I think that was the first bit of. Uh, animation we saw in the anime limited office when we were kind wow. of looking at the title oh. like we saw the kind of early cinematics for that and you know mm. it's just captivating just watching right. that like it's, it's beautifully animated and mm. just you know just this adorable penguin just running around having its own little little adventure like you could sell that as a short in its own right that mm. whole sequence was done by animated by one person oh, right. yes the ex jubilee oh, wow. animator hiroshi shimizu and you can see he really studied how penguins move because he that sequence not only captures the infamous penguin waddles but for those of you watching in, in black and white uh, Kim is waddling <laughs> well it not only gets that but it also gets how penguins swim and how they like jump out of the water, go back in, and how it's like they're flying through the water. Hmm. And uh, Callum and I had just recently been to the London Zoo and we'd been watching penguins in their natural, like, doing what penguins do in the water. And you realise what magnificent creatures they are in the water. Mm -hmm. And that's an element of penguins that you don't actually see that often in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And it's captured beautifully in this film. Yeah, notably I went to SeaWorld a couple years ago and they didn't have space to swim. <laughs> So there, so yeah, London Zoo was um, that moment where I was like, oh, like they actually do move like that, and it showed um, how accurately they want really wants to depict these penguins. Unfortunately, it is like um, I think it's the only scene that we actually see them swimming. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, 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 there's the big there the penguin the raft, yeah. and which I just want to add, yeah. we were not paid by the London Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I got really emotionally invested in those penguins. There's oh, yeah. one. Oh, really? Yeah, there's one called Penta who they um, they take with them and they try and leave the town with the penguin to figure out what to do. And then because he's he's left the gone so far away from that sphere, that alien spacecraft, essentially, uh, he's the penguin is just sick and he he, he disappears and goes back into being a coke can. What? And, because then, <laughs> and, and that moment was. I was so upset. I was so heartbroken. That poor penguin. Poor Penta. And it was such a horrifying scene because it shudders yeah. and its neck starts like stretching and he, out. And, and he it, cries out and then yeah. just becomes a cook cat. More uh, horrifying than anything from Calamity the Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> there's, your, there's your tagline for the film. <laughs> so just mentioned a very unique moment there. Any other particular moments of the film? Want to highlight or, or raise before I get you to try and sum it up for how you would describe it for people? Uh, oh. One moment that particularly appealed to me is is when the school bullies tie him to a <laughs> yeah. to a drinks machine, and so so he's he's been tied to this this drinks machine in the street, and then and then the woman he adores comes walking by, and he's pretending that this is all part of some kind. Of, yeah. uh, it's very familiar to me. <laughs> I just loved his comeback, which was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He goes, I'm being a vending machine. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing? <laughs> and then she says, I want a Coke. And he says, that'll be 120 yen. <laughs> but then she can't get her Coke out, and then she, wa she walks away, and then just the, task her down. <laughs> Please help me. Um, I also want to point out um, a scene that 
I think if the first time you're watching it, it may just seem like it comes out of nowhere. It's the scene where the little sister barges in on the, the um, on Aoyama's room and says, "My mum is going to die," mm-hmm. and it's it comes completely out of nowhere because she's not shown to be sick or anything. And then as Aoyama comforts his sister, he realizes she's just talking about the distant future, <laughs> and it's a moment of realizing, oh, that is. The sister's first time of realising that death is a thing that can occur. Mm. And it's this part is what leads into a whole... The end... Everything about the end is about coming to terms with the idea of death. It's a very existential film. (laughs) (laughs) It's not all about cute penguins. (laughs) So what did you think about that transition to this idea about coming to terms with death? I didn't see death. Um, I actually never thought of um, the Onesan as um, dying. I thought of her as like leaving. Yeah, leaving. Yeah, like, ending. I mean, I think it, yeah. there's there's partings, there's endings. Uh, I mean, and he has this vague idea that he'll meet her again, but yeah, it's, it's not clear whether or not that has been any way justified. But, uh, but yeah. I, I, yeah, I didn't see it as, as just totally death rate. Certainly, I haven't come to terms with the fact that things end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the film didn't really touch on the th- those themes as heavily as, as the book, the book did. Writer. So, yeah. yes, in the book, Uchida gets a lot more time to shine. Oh, oh. <laughs> Uchida! Uchida comes up with his own theory about the aliens. Oh, I, want, I wish he, he did that. And film. he talks a lot about death and about how it can't be avoided. And that's why that, those, that theme probably struck out more to me because, I mean, it was just something that's more focused on. Uchida is the is the sidekick character who has a quite a miserable time, um, <laughs> and, and often wanders off into his own little film, uh, which happen, which happens off screen, um, uh, and he, he's kind of overlooked because uh, I think he's smarter than Aoyama. Mm. Everybody is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, just the whole cast. Now. It's only the penguins aren't smarter. Than him. And, and we're not sure about the penguin. <laughs> just imagine a bunch of DVD extras of like what happened in this scene when he went off there. Yeah. yeah. Just a load of bonus random short stories. Yeah. There's, there's a scene in the book where Suzuki time travels with <laughs> a bully, for reference. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, it's... Yeah. Let's go back and, and fix the bullying attempt that they failed on? Or? Well, no, no, no. He comes into contact with the sphere oh, and okay. then he time travels without realising it. So, it, it's just these things. It, none of it actually relevant to the plot, but mm-hmm. just all these little adventure things and all these little mysteries. Hmm. So, any uh, final thoughts on Penguin Highway before I get you guys to sell it to people, as it were? <laughs> mm, no. <laughs> yeah, so, what's a, what's the line you would try and get people to watch the film with? I wouldn't use a line. I would get up my phone and show a GIF of that. It's a it's in the trailer as well. It's just that moment where there's penguins rushing around and they're riding on top of the penguins, steering it around. <laughs> I I think. Uh, even though the penguins are not necessarily needed to deliver the specific plot that they were going for, I think that that's a huge appeal for why people would watch it. Mm. Like, thinking it's a movie about penguins... I think going into it, thinking it's a movie about fun penguins doing fun things and transforming into stuff, and then 
realizing it's something deeper. I think that's the best experience because that's kind of the same experience Ayama had. It's like, oh, cool, penguins. Mm. And like his first interactions with some of the other characters are like, oh, penguins are cute, aren't they? Did you know that Moromi first turned down the proposal to make a film out of Penguin Highway? And he was only convinced when Ishida showed him a draft of that scene that... Oh, the penguins rushing through the... Yeah, that scene. Yeah. Very interesting. Did not know that. <laughs> How do you sum it up, Roxy? How do you get people to go and watch it? Uh, it's kind of a charming adventure story with adorable penguins, and why would you not want to see <laughs> adorable penguins? Sold. <laughs> yeah, I was so sold on the penguins, so. <laughs> so we have one more film to talk about before we get to jury deliberation night, as it were. That being Mirai. Andy, what's your elevator pitch for Mirai? Yeah, so Mirai is the latest film from Mamoru Hosoda. Um, it is uh, initially the story of Kuhn, who's a, a very young boy who uh, is about to become uh, a big brother. Uh, so his parents bring home his uh, new little sister, Mirai, and of course he hates it because suddenly he's not the centre of attention anymore. Um, he throws various tantrums um, and uh, kind of you know, runs off into his garden in, in half, uh, which is kind of the uh, the gateway to a whole bunch of fantastical adventures that he gets to have with his family, past, present and future. So he gets to uh, meet his little sister from the future, he gets to meet his mother when she was his age, uh, he gets to meet his great-grandfather, and so on and so forth. Um, and so really it's kind of an examination of, of kind of family and the ties between family and kind of, you know, the, the stories that, that percolate through those generations. Um, through the lens of this this young boy who's kind of trying to figure out that he's suddenly not the centre of his universe anymore. Who would like to begin? Should we change it up? Roxy, do you want to go first? Put some thoughts out? I love Mirai. Yeah? <laughs> it's not my favourite Hosoda film, okay. sorry to say. But, but it which is, would be your favourite then? It's kind of a tie between Wolf Children and Boy and the Beast. I think okay. Wolf Children would probably win out on that one. Okay. But Mirai is like comes after those two for me. I just think it's very it's got it's just so sweet and heartwarming. When I I this is the second time I've watched it here, <laughs> but the first time I watched it, I was so happy at the end. I was still smiling. Like an hour later, I was talking to my friends about the film, trying to tell them how we have to watch this when it comes out on November second. Nice Cheap plug, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I just thought. This film was just so charming, it's so wholesome, this kind of story of this little boy trying to grow, all these little adventures he goes on to grow and become a good older brother to Mirai. And um, while he can be a little bit annoying, always having tantrums, it's very realistic as a little child, like a little four-year-old is not going to understand what's going on in his life. Um, and I just love the adventures that Hosoda came up with, that he, he, he went on. Um, and my favourite one, really, was the great-grandfather story, yeah. where he learns how to ride a bike by being with his great-grandfather. And um, it was just, that was that, I think that moment is the one that really, like, got me emotionally in this film, because it was just so lovely, like, it, the great-grandfather was such a lovely character and, like, took care of him. I think you mentioned yesterday he was a good example of non-toxic masculinity <laughs> in his life. And um, I think when I interviewed Hosoda when he came to London before, he mentioned that this was really his grandfather, his, his grandfather and his children's great grandfather. And there's this little charming story that's just put in the film, which is he had a bad leg because he got injured in the war 
and uh, he met his wife by racing her um, and basically the family were like, oh, that didn't happen because he had a bad leg, so he wouldn't have won the race and so she wouldn't have accepted to marry him because he couldn't have won the race. But in the film, you get to see that and how she let him win so that they could get married. And it was just so beautiful for me. And he, Hosoda, told me that that really happened. That was a real story in his life. And he wanted to represent it on screen to show his family this is how I think it would have happened. So, yeah. Callum, you said it was your favourite part of the film too, right? Yeah. Um, I. One of my big things about that is that... Um, all of the characters that he meets are people that are either with him right now or he'd meet in the future. So he'd meet the future Mirai and he'd talk to the dog. For some <laughs> um, and But uh, the great-grandfather, like, because that was an opportunity for him not only to meet his great-grandfather, but to learn from him. And there's a remarkable scene. Uh, like what follows... Um, so it's initially he's trying to ride, learn to ride a bike he's struggling he, he eventually gets frustrated and gives up and starts crying because his, his dad um, has to go and take care of the baby and then uh, he goes home enters this dream sequence by the tree and um, he, yeah, his great grandfather um, teaches him how to ride a horse and how to ride a motorbike and says, look, it's the same idea for all of them. You just look out to the distance. And that is the lesson that he takes to um, end up riding a bike. And so that being able to say, oh, yes, uh, my great grandfather visited me a dream and uh, taught me how to ride a bike was exceptionally charming. Mm. It's worth pointing out that the great-grandfather had already passed away. Yes, his funeral was um, was mentioned to uh, have uh, only been like either a couple of months or a year or so before the start of the movie. So he never really had that much of a context of who he was. And initially he doesn't know, he didn't realise it was his granddad's, he thought it was his father. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, like even when he sees the picture uh, when he comes essentially back to present day and he sees a picture of his great-grandfather, he's like, oh, dad. Yeah. And his mom's like, no, no, that's your great-grandfather. And he's like, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was part of my issue with the film is that um, there were enclosed moments. They were... Mm. Um, I genuinely thought Mirai could have been a TV anime because that could have been an episode. They they make a big deal in the exhibition, uh, the Mamoru sort of mm -hmm. exhibition, about the fact that it's divided into five acts and that the yeah. acts are quite self-contained in a way, that the first act establishes the real world and the second act is about one particular story and the third act is about... It, it does end up feeling very bitty mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's noticeable that Sotoko Okudera is not script writing with Mamoru Hosoda anymore and I think had she been around it would have been more filmic, um, the ending would have been different um, and it, it, it might it, it, I'm not, I, I don't want to say it was preachy but it was um, oh it was definitely preachy oh uh, here we go <laughs> well, Kim's decided it's preachy uh, um, I, I, it, it, it didn't feel as well written as other Hasoda films and the fact that the, 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 the writer is not working on it is, is an issue I, I think that you know Mamoru Oshii went through this when, when he split with Kazunori Ito and suddenly a director is trying to write their own script and it's not necessarily uh, his primary skill set and I think I, I got that 
impression from Mirai. And I, I personally as well did not find the, the lead voice convincing. Posada <laughs> uh, yeah. has gone on and on in interviews about how difficult it is to find someone to play a four-year-old child. And that's, that's why people don't do it. Because if you get a 16-year-old girl to do it, then it, it, it's not convincing to me. I don't know how other people mm. felt about it. But. It annoyed me more upon second viewing. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, so just uh, uh, no. In, in Machia, for example, uh, when the baby appears, they actually put microphones into a couple's house who had a baby, and they just recorded the audio for two weeks to get baby sounds. Um, uh, obviously, you can't do that with a with a four year old child. But I mean, I think that Hosod has made life very difficult for himself by picking a protagonist who's almost impossible to play. Yeah. It's not. I don't think the film's going to be a crowd pleaser at all. Um, in fact, we we have the numbers to know that it wasn't a huge crowd. It wasn't pleaser. a crowd pleaser with an, with with the anime uh, with Scott Norris anime audience. Yeah. Alma, however, speaking as a parent, was yeah. very taken with the film, and certainly there were children in the audience in Edinburgh who were uh, in, in Glasgow who were very taken with the film. This is a film that really appeals to young children and to their parents who are sick of them. <laughs> um, and, and also to, to, to young parents, you know, the, the, the idea of the father staying at home to look after his child and trying to check his email while also burping the baby is very familiar to me. Um, and I, and I, I think that uh, the, uh, Almar said that the, the, the um, Mirai really spoke to him and he thinks it could really speak to children as well and when we're putting it on for a Scotland Loves anime crowd we are not putting it in for an audience of for four year old children and we're not showing it to an audience of 30 year old parents we're showing it to the audience that comes in between them that's more interested in pancreas so as ever you're comparing apples and oranges when you compare these films um, and, and Almar said that he, he felt very much that a, you know, a good chunk of the audience who didn't vote for Mirai now will come back in 10 years and wish they did. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting point I want to raise, I should say, this is one film I have seen out of everything, oh. so I can actually add something else to this discussion for once. I have a very different perspective of the film, and it's something which I'll bring up first. Mm. It, does everyone here have siblings? Me! Yes. No. <laughs> so, I think, depending on whether... I think depending on whether you are an only child or not will depend on how you react to this film. Because speaking as an only child and how, for want of a better way of putting it, didn't necessarily have all the parents present at the same time from as far back as I can remember, I personally couldn't relate to a lot of the film. There were wonderful okay. moments in the film that I really, really liked, but in terms of actually relating to the film as a whole, I couldn't, res it didn't resonate with me a lot. And so for me, it was a bit of a, a unique disconnect. There were elements I loved, like the grandfather scene that we yeah. talked about, mm. I think is one of the strongest parts of the film. Mm -hmm. But you could relate to that because you had a, 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 a great grandfather you've never met. Yeah. So I think that will also be, that, will also, that, that connection, I think, will determine a lot of how people on a more mainstream level. Yes, but if we're we'll talking about the mainstream, we are probably talking about a conservative, traditional set of family groupings. Agreed. And certainly the, the anime market since the 1960s in feature films has often favoured a family audience mm -hmm. because, as Toshio Suzuki, you know, while cackling, uh, <laughs> once said, is that if you do a film for all the family, then both parents and their kids have to come and see it. Uh, and although the nuclear family of, you know, 2.4 children is, is, is declining in Japan, you can still probably expect a a lot of people to have had some kind of analogous experience to that. So I think it's a fair exchange. You know, we, we can't make every film for polyamorous goths who mm. work at a carnival <laughs> or, 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 or whatever you want to, you know, pick for your 
for your for your niche. Um, when you're working in the mainstream, you are often going to expect a more traditional audience. And I think that um, counting for a family film to appeal to families is 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 a is a good is a reasonable risk. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, it's a bad risk to take a festival for a taco. But in many ways, though, it's very interesting to see this is how people responded to it. For yeah. that, that very, mm. I hate to phrase this way, but this demographic mm. of people who would come to Scotland Loves Anime, it's very interesting to see the kind of reaction that a film like Mirai produces. Uh, I mean, the, the interesting thing for us as well is that the reaction has been different between Glasgow and Edinburgh yes. as well. It's been more positive in Glasgow than in Edinburgh. I suspect that's perhaps partially a factor of just simply the order the films have screened. You know, again, back yeah. to what Callum was saying about the audience award, you know, as much as we try to, you know, show each film as its own thing, you know, nothing exists in a bubble. If you've already seen Penguin Highway and you're still thinking about the cute penguins and about how you cried at Pancreas the night before, then you've got Mirai after those two films and mm. it's a different experience to watching Mirai before Penguin yeah, Highway. It's, it's, it's an interesting issue that, that film festival juries have to take. It's, and you've been relatively uh, lucky this year in that you have only had to watch two films a night. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are some occasions when the film festival jury ends up watching everything in competition in a single day oh, and it is a yeah. bum-numbing... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult because then there are you know simple issues like when you can go out for a piss. <laughs> have, do you have time to have any food? We had one juror who had type two diabetes, and she's like, "I need twenty five minutes to go and get a sandwich, otherwise, you know, I'm going to freak out in the cinema." And, and and these are all issues which the audience can pick and choose what they see, really. And and they're you know they're convention going fanboys, so they are very happy to just do one thing for eight hours and quite happy with it. But but I, I see uh, among the tweets some of the long term festival goers are now saying, "Well, I'm not going to go and see that film because I do need to have time to have something to eat and to enjoy and whatever." But when you're the jury you are being obliged to think sensibly and critically and, and professionally about a whole bunch of things which even if you would do this for fun you wouldn't do it all at once for fun um, and so that's a quite a lot of pressure on the jury and then the order and the context makes a difference another thing bit of context to keep in mind is that besides Callum all of the jurors had seen Mirai before yes yeah, yeah. my first time seeing ah, it very interesting I did not like Boy and the Beast um, <laughs> so when it opened in Japan I opted not to go and see Mirai I I figured I'll probably end up watching it you're responsible point. for the 40 million dollar drop I, I am absolutely yeah. <laughs> that's exactly how much I was planning on spending on it <laughs> and um yeah, and it surprised me. Um, there was some. I think my main problem was the structure. Uh, I mean, I know it's the structure that Hasoda's been bragging about. Um, well, on that note, yeah. uh, I, I was translating the um, the exhibition uh, materials, uh, and we got into a bit of a fight with with uh, um, with Studio Chizu about it because uh, because I translated everything as you know in the first act this happens, in the second act this happens. Mm -hmm. And they came back and said, it's not first act, second act. It's Ooh. A part and B part. <laughs> and, 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 and they were going on about how this is completely unprecedented in the world of drama. I was like, well, if you've never heard of Shakespeare, yeah, there's no such thing as a five-act structure. <laughs> but, so there's kind of an argument about, about whether or not it should be... I, I know how difficult it is to sell a film, and everyone's trying to find something new and exciting to say about it. The fact that we have five acts is not something new and exciting to say, yeah. particularly when they are so obviously integrated. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a film that's very similar for me to the Back to the Future trilogy, which tells a very similar story in a very similar way. It's also very similar at a very basic level to Summer Wars, 
because you have all the generations of a family coming together yeah. in one situation. And uh, uh, so Summer Wars happens in a real place, in a physical time, whereas this is, is stretched uh, chronologically across a hundred years and unified only by a magic tree. Um, but, but basically it's a very similar story to Summer Wars that the family come together to solve a problem but I think a big difference between Summer Wars and Mirai is that the catharsis at the end it is not the family coming together at the end in Mirai it is just kind he of his illusions because his pants up <laughs> But, but I mean, but, but Hosoda himself has said that that's what fascinates him about children as characters is that they make these incredible dynamic leaps in intellect and ability. There's a day when you can't put your pants on, then the day then then there's a day when you can, and you can do that for the rest of your life, unless you know you have an accident like some people in our uh, staff. Um, and so, and similarly, there's a day in your life when you can't ride a bike, and there's a day in your life when you can, and that's not a skill that necessarily disappears. And so, children make these incredible advancements in their life which for us are incredibly mundane and a lot of the advancements in Mirai are very mundane he learns to ride a bike he learns to put his pants on um, they're not big deals to us but to him that's the first time he's ever done it but is that seems like it's very hard to capture that kind of intensity of experience for the child for an audience that can't relate to that specific feeling anymore hmm. maybe we want a bit more spectacle like we got with summer wars with the whole family coming maybe, together may, maybe so but but i think that the the reaction among among children who are, are ironically too young to vote in, in, yeah. in, our, in our audience award has been very very positive both in japan and in britain the, the, the kids audience really do seem to lap it up and their parents do too yeah. one thing i really liked is that this film, to me, really captured a child's imagination. Like, especially the first adventure he goes on with Yuko, his dog. When the dog appears and is like, I'm the prince of this house. Like, you took oh, yeah. all the attention away from me. And then yeah. he's like, wait a minute. Are you the dog? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then steals his tail and pretends to be him. That, that was so cute. I have a um, dog that is a very... Uh, so I've got a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel at my parents' house. And I know this dog isn't specifically the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, but it's a similar breed. And so, like, so that was one of my favourite parts, like seeing the, I'm the prince of the house. <laughs> like, talking to a dog, especially one incredibly stuck up, it was, <laughs> it, I think it was a great way to open uh, the fantasy element of the yeah. film. because. We knew about the older sister in because um, that's I think it's on the poster yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. Um, just pre I mean, previews in general. Yeah, the yeah. first teaser was the name just, of the film. It's, yeah, uh, her, like with the whale thing going on each and. I thought it was quite interesting as well that when we get to the the, the revelation at the end that the, the whole family is connected by this this magic tree and uh, yeah. it's a very difficult thing to translate because I think we say this, this is your family record or something but actually it, it would come out as this tree is your family tree yeah. um, the f concept of family includes pets oh. yeah. um, so it's a very sweet moment when you see the dog um, just about to leave his dog mother to go and join the family and it's just kind of an offhand thing but it, 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 you know, for, for pet owners that's yeah. an incredible moment to say, well, no, you, you are included in this. You know, we, we, we've made you a talking character. We've made you an, an anthropomorphized dog prince. But yeah, you are actually part of the family. And that's very mm. sweet. One of the uh, standout moments, like it's not a big spectacle, but it's um, his 
speech about who he is in relation to his family. Mm-hmm. So he, like he says, I am dad's son. Yeah. I am my mother's son. I am the dog's carer or yeah. so, I can't remember what word they used for he it. Feed him. Yeah. Really and it, and that was it for the start. Mm-hmm. But then eventually he finally gets like admits, Oh, and I'm Mirai's brother. Yeah. And then that's the, the big revelation. It seems like that's the char- That's his character arc. Yeah. It's him. But you see, I, I, I really felt it. there should have been more. And I really think I that if Sotoku Okudera was on this, then there would have been. It wouldn't have taken much. You do get to see Kun as a, as a teenager. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of glimpses of him. And there is something going on. He's grumpy. He's, he's arguing with Mirai. He's sitting on a train station on his way somewhere and you don't know where he's going. Um, and I think that there was an opportunity there for Mirai of the past maybe to say Kun of the future or for Kun to save himself in the future or something to actually take the story further into the future than mm. just Mirai herself and actually save him himself. And that would have been a nice little element of closure that somehow, I mean, I haven't read the novel, so I don't know if the novel... Oh, tre- I have not read the novel. Okay, so I, I, mean, I don't know. You know, every time Shinkai does a novel, I think, oh, maybe this will explain that thing. But no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, so maybe there's more of the same. But I, I honestly felt that there, you know, in, in true Back to the Future style, that there could have been a, a final act that actually sealed this and closed the loop and actually made it work in a better way. Maybe even Kun meeting his own children or something would have been a would have been an option that that. That would have been a bit much, though. No, not for me. I, I, I would have. Uh, I think that would, that would have really helped ground it because you know we we got the past and the present, and Mirai is supposed to be the future, but she's not the only future that's coming, and yeah. that would have been an interesting thing. I definitely wanted to see more of Kun from the future. Like, yeah. I, I really liked that bit. I, of the train station. I either wanted to see nothing or more. I didn't like the uh, yeah, as you said, the. He's grumpy about something. Something's happened. Is he just a grumpy mm. teenager? Are we just meant mm. to say puberty? Mm. Like, <laughs> yeah. The fact there was that little tease actually detracted for you then. Yeah, because um, I mean, you, you can just yeah. say, well, you know, maybe he's just a grumpy teenager. That's mm. that's fine. Yeah. I but think you, that was the explanation. That's but, probably the most likely explanation. But, it, but it's it's yeah. But it's, we're, we're dealing with a film here where where everything has layers and everything has loops and everything ties mm. back to everything else. So oh yeah, but he's just a grumpy teenager. Is is not good enough for. Me. Yeah. I, I thought they, they really could have been something there and I think that would have made it a much better film for me and it's part of um, the lessons that he's learning is like what sort of person do you want to be do you want to be the person who cares about making great memories with people or do you want to be the person who cares about what colour pants you're wearing mm-hmm. um, and then seeing like that at the end it's like you become him that's who you're how, that's what you're going to be I Maybe they could have had a moment where, like, this is like a Christmas Carol esque moment where this is the grumpy guy you'll end up you'll end up being yeah. if you're angry at your parents all the time and don't like wearing blue pants. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think there really could have been an opportunity to mirror the great grandfather scene with Kun in that role. Yeah, and, may, and like the great grandfather, maybe not even realizing who he's talking to. That would have been very sweet. Yeah, um, but but no. Yeah. Out of curiosity for Kim and Roxy having seen it twice, do you feel like this is a film that rewards repeat viewings or not? Because I've seen it twice myself. I feel like I liked it more the second time, but I can't quite verbalise why. So I'm kind of Something curious like as to what, what your take on it is. I think I enjoyed it both times, and it still made me feel like warm and fuzzy inside <laughs> at the end. But <clears throat> the five acts, I felt that more 
the second time. I could, I really felt when it one ended and the next one starts, and I thought it kind of dragged out mm. a bit. So well, it literally fades to black each yeah, time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a very, very clear ad break. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you, you know, already you, planned how it's going to be aired on television. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for Kevin Bacon to come on and try and sell me a phone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still enjoyed it, but I just felt that. It's a movie that is chock full of tiny details, tiny design details, mm. tiny references in the dialogue. These things all become more clear when you watch it a second time mm. so it is a film yeah. that does reward a second viewing if you have the patience no, I, I was the lone laugher at the, the train name joke ahead oh, of the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so they ask him what he wants to call his sister and he says Nozomi um, and, and they go oh yeah you know, Hope that's a nice name and, and he goes you know Tsubame <laughs> and, I, and I laughed because those are names of, of bullet trains um, but you know it takes a while for the, the parents are a bit thick so they haven't worked that out so yeah. <laughs> I don't they worked it out on the second name yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I want to call her you know 878 Sapporo Express yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there's the, this great moment where like um, he's about to hit her sister with a train and then like the future version comes like you tried to hit me with a bullet train and then and she's like, he's like, actually, it was the, I think it was the Azami Express. <laughs> <laughs> One of the, a moment that I just in talking about it now that I remember is when it involves is it the, the, the doll's house display and needs mm. to take it down and yeah. trying to reach for the piece. Oh my God. <laughs> and like some of the facial expressions in the film, I think are fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And we talked about it showing the child's imagination, depicting that. But I think also the general reaction of things Though I said I couldn't necessarily connect to it on an emotional level, I can picture that's exactly how it would look in real life. Yeah. Just, it is more exaggerated, but that's a great depiction of, oh, get it, <laughs> grab it. As a comedy, I think Hossida gets better with each film mm. in terms of delivering comedy. And I think he's, you know, he's iconic lateral panning shots. Now he's t- turning into diagonal oh. panning shots. It's... He's, <laughs> 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 that, that house is so fun to see navigated like yeah. mo- um, a large amount of uh, the objects in the house are CG and you can clearly see why because he wants to move the camera around it as much as possible and asking 2D animators to say can you draw all 360 degrees of that bowl of apples it mm. would be ridiculous it was a 2D the- film with the, the 3D stuff was almost longer than the 2D yeah. stuff I think it was, in fact. Yeah, it? yeah, it was. <laughs> so before we get to the jury deliberation part, just to wrap up Mirai discussion, of course. what's your line to try and encourage people to watch it? Hashtag relatable. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I think it's the Hasoda movie with the best design and an interesting structure that you might like. I think this film has a lot of heart and a really lovely story and arc for its main character. So we've talked about all four films. Then we get to the not taxi ride to the jury deliberations, Jonathan. Yeah. Take us through the evening. Um, How did it all pan out? Well, well, I mean, you know, it, it was a it was a garbage fire this year because uh, I had to deal with uh, and well, it's Andrew. Andrew had to book us a room, uh, book us a, a table uh, in at short notice and we were in a very loud place so it, it wasn't ideal and it's not the kind of calm jury debate that I like it's shouting at each other's ears like you're at some kind of nightclub um, 
but uh, we, we did uh, I, I made them talk through the film in, in much the way that you just heard we basically reprise a lot of what happened um, last night in terms of the negotiations uh, and people's discussions and then we, we took the vote and there was a clear winner um, so there wasn't really um, much need to uh, we, we don't need unanimity here um, the, the, the voting went uh, zero for Calamity of a Zombie Girl one for Pancreas two for Mirai which surprised me a little bit actually um, and five for Penguin Highway. So there, were, there was no debate. We were able to finish relatively quickly. So for those who have not listened to this before, Jonathan, when it comes to the voting process, right. we should probably uh, re-clarify how this Sorry, works. Sorry, Jeremy. Yes. Yeah. So uh, everybody gets two votes and they can put them both behind one film or they can split them between two films. And in the event of a tie, we try and get the, juries, uh, the jurors to persuade each other and talk each other to reassign their votes. Um, and if there's still a tie... I get to cast the deciding vote, which is often a very difficult thing for me to do because I have to make very unpleasant decisions that's sure to piss somebody off. Um, however, on, on this occasion, because we have five votes out of eight for, for Penguin Highway, there, there's, there was no real need to continue. So, you know, I was home by nine o'clock typing up the, typing up the report. <laughs> so I guess I should ask each of you, how did your vote split down, if you don't mind me asking? So I just want to say, first off, start by saying that Although it looks like Penguin Highway was the clear winner and it looks like there was no need for debate, in, our, in all of our minds, I think it was a much closer yes. uh, competition than what it looks on paper. So the reason why... I, I, I should say, I, I was expecting there to be a tie and I was expecting to have to decide myself between Mirai and Penguin Highway. Yeah. So the reason why I put two of my votes into Penguin Highway instead of splitting, which was my first thought, which was, would have been my gut instinct, because on balance, I loved both films equally. And in terms of quality, I could not put one on top of the other. But because I was voting for a critic's award and I wanted an award to go to something, I had to Decide. I decided based on what I thought deserved an award more, and that went to Penguin Highway. But in, if if this was just a question about quality, or the three films, let's put Calamity out of the way. The three <laughs> films were very close to each other, and that is reflected in the audience vote as well. Yes. Um. I. So even before coming to the UK, um, I was fairly sure it was going to be between Penguin Highway and Mirai in the end. I always thought Mirai was going to win. Um, I hadn't even I hadn't seen it, but based on how people had spoken about the film, because uh, I think it had debuted in some places, and I'd I'd heard some good things. Um, also, a soda movie. It feels like. It yeah. should win. Although, you know, ironically, Hosoda has never been in competition that's gotten yeah, that anime. Yeah, it's the first because, time. Because uh, Summer Wars came out too early and uh, Boy and the Beast came out too early. And so, uh, you know, Wolf Children would have won if it had been in competition the year it came out. But it wasn't in competition. Yeah. Um, but I was determined to make sure that I do two in one rather than one in two. I didn't want to split my vote. I wanted to come out of the four films and... Um, make a decision. I was really hoping that uh, some of them would be worse because mm. it would make it would make an easier decision if I uh, stepped out of Mirai and was like, oh, good, it was a bit, bit crap. I can just mm. happily just allocate two to Penguin Highway. And we had um, 
Mirror was the last film that we saw, and I think we had an hour and a bit before the dinner where we had to deliberate, and I still wasn't sure about it at that point. But reflecting on uh, the structure of Mirai and um, how I felt it told an overall story, in the end, it was Penguin Highway that made me smile the most, that made me feel more satisfied with how it ended. And um, I had less, less complaints, less um, things that I would have liked to see dif different about Penguin Highway. So I decided to go for two for Penguin Highway as well. So I did, I split my vote. I gave one to Penguin Highway and one to Mirai. Um, <clears throat> because I'd already seen Mirai, I knew how I felt about the film. I already had a long time really to reflect on it and how just generally get my thoughts together about the film. So watching it again is kind of more just how do I feel about second viewing? Does it change? Does my opinion change on this film? And for the most part, no. It was just the fact that it felt, it just felt very um, chapter-based and episodic. That that was the thing that really, that I noticed the second time around. But for the most part, I still really enjoyed the film. So I definitely wanted to give one vote to that. I was debating really between Penguin Highway and Pancreas. And I was going through my head, the pros and cons of both films, what I enjoyed. <laughs> And while I really love that little Prince montage in Pancreas, I thought that's not enough for me to really cast my vote for that. And, and Penguin Highway was just so adorable and so cute and just such a lovely adventure story. So I decided to give one to, to each of those. And Almar, who's not here, he split his vote as well. He gave one vote to Pancreas and one vote to Mirai. Um, I think if I'd have pushed him enough, he would have reassigned a vote to Mirai because he was very taken with Mirai as a parent. Um, but uh, so, so that was a, very, a very clear margin. So there's none of the late night shouting that normally goes on <laughs> yeah. on a festival jury. However, I, I will say that if I had been forced to choose between Mirai and Penguin Highway, I would have voted with the script and voted for Penguin Highway. It was, yeah, so even though the votes are very different, yeah. like we were, um, it looked like, it was looking like Alma was going to go for two for Mirai, mm. and both of us were thinking of going uh, with your vote mm. and going Mirai Penguin Highway. So, um, so, so, so it, it could have been much closer. And of yeah. course, in, in the case of the audience award, there was a 0 0.32 points between first and third place. I mean, it was very, very close very in the close. audience award. Calamity for Zombie Girl, not so much. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, um, single single lolly sticks were making a difference uh, in, in the voting on um, uh, uh, the audience award. And in fact, Megan, who was counting the six, she said, why do we bother counting the three-star sticks? Because they're just, they're just average. I said, because we're, we're this close to a tie break, the, the number of stars might be an issue. And she's like, oh, blimey, you better count again. <laughs> So there you have it, everybody. And I will point out as well that from the moment people walked out of Mirai to the moment we announced the audience award uh, was the time it took for me to walk up onto the stage and introduce the next film because uh, the staff at Anime Limited were counting the lolly sticks, tabulating them, getting them to Andy. Andy was calculating the precise scores and then sending them down, a, down his phone to Andrew, who was waving his phone in my face, standing by the stage, for me to write them down and walk up onto the stage and make it look easy. We're a slick operation. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, so there we go. And it's yep. Scott Love's Anime 2018. I had to think of the year just then, because I knew it 17, but there we go. <laughs> Have you guys enjoyed yourselves? I've yeah, had a great time. Great. I love it, Libba. 
Mm-hmm. Would you do it again? Yeah, please. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm worried my opinions were too bad to get invited again. <laughs> <laughs> All opinions are welcome. This is why we do this, because so many people are fascinated. How does the jury discuss, or what are their mm. thoughts and yeah. feelings? And some years, it's one of the reasons why we started doing this many years, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, many years ago, I should say, is that people were really curious, what was the thought process? Particularly when the jury comes out with a different decision to the audience. And, mm. and you know, there are there yeah. are audience members. I mean, there was one guy tweeting, well, we all know who it was, uh, saying um, that, you know, he very much approved the jury result because he disagreed so much with the audience award. And, you mm. know, he's very pleased to see that, he, that a different process gives a different um, result. There is talk about next year's jury already. As there are, there are plans afoot to have a bunch of people who hate anime. So that's going to be great. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that's actually going to work out so uh, I think we'll, we'll probably need to you know let the rumour mill begin let the rumour mill yeah. begin yeah um, we'll see well there you go well thank you very much everybody for listening and thank you to all of you for taking so much of your Sunday to discuss this really really appreciate it and uh, you know what where can everyone find your work and such and find you guys if they want to follow you check out what you've written well I byline on Anime News Network so if you just search Kim Morrissey you'll find my articles I do a lot of interest stuff so um, that's code for not that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but you can check out my reviews, I suppose. Any social media platforms that, you, that people can find you on? Or that um, you, you want people to find you on? <laughs> um, I'm also on Twitter. So you can find me at frog underscore kun. Um, so my main place that I am at that I'm at is uh, the Canapro Effect YouTube channel so that's just www.youtube.com slash the Canapro Effect no spaces um, and uh, I mean I do stuff all over the place but um, I'll link to it all on my Twitter profile which is at Canapa show um, you can find me on Twitter at Roxy Simons that's S-I-M-O-N-S <laughs> it's only one N and only one M um, my main job is at Mail Online, so if you want to read about showbiz stories, you will see my name there. Also, outside of that, I also write a lot about Japanese and Korean cinema and generally Japanese culture for places like Mayan Buzz that do MCM Comic Con, Eastern Kicks as an Asian film website, Godzilla, Video On Demand, things like that. My byline's on there, so you'll, you'll see. I just want to ask, how many uh, film festivals uh, have you been doing? around this time. So this is the third one, and there are two more. <laughs> you, you went to Udine, didn't you? Yes, and I went to Udine in April, which was wonderful. That's where I saw One Cut of the Dead, so I really appreciated you mentioning that before Calamity of a Zombie Girl, because that is one of my favourite films of the year, one of my favourite Japanese films I've seen. It was that, I think that was the premiere for the film as well, was at Udine, and everyone that was there, the cast and crew were there, and they really didn't know how it was going to be, uh, how the reaction was going to be. And it was just such a funny film, and I just told them, like, this will be huge. Yeah, for those who don't know, Udine is an Italian film festival near Venice that uh, specializes in the East Asian material. And if you are a distributor and you just need to spend a week just swatting up on what's new, you just go to Udine and you'll get everything that's new in one block. Um, and they're very, very good at hospitality there. They're yeah. very good at looking after people. You you have, in, in true Italian style, you have no idea what's going on until you arrive. But once you're there, <laughs> um, they're, they're taking you away every night for just fantastic food. And it's a beautiful medieval town. And, you know, they get fantastic guests. And it's a very good experience. I, I was there in 2002 um, doing a Chinese animation program. 
and uh, it was very very good fun. Mm, it's definitely my favourite festival to ever do is Udina. They're just so. <laughs> but now you've been to Edinburgh. Yes, also, the... this one is great. Why would I not want to watch anime? They don't show anime. No, no, it's fair. So this also. Your favourite anime festival. My favourite anime festival is definitely here. No, for sure. Well saved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course. Thank you very much for listening. If you are a first-time listener, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you go back into the archives, good luck. You can find our website at alltheanime.com on the social media, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We are All The Anime. We're also All The Anime on Instagram as well, should you want to send pictures or tag us in things, because many of you do. Thank you very much for listening. If you're at MCM Comic Con next week, we'll be there in full force. and you will probably be telling me in about 20 minutes what's going on there, because I don't know yet. But thank you very much for listening and for everyone joining us today. For everyone joining us today, if I can get my words out, nearly made it, Jonathan. Nearly made it. <laughs> Signing off for the Anime Limited podcast. Take care. Bye. 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 There you go. <laughs> Perfect ending. <laughs>